0: From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP President Sophia Thomas. And this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP-Pulse, AANP's official podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and to our patients. E&M coding has been a source of discussion in the healthcare community for years, and a recent overhaul to the system has left many of us with more questions than answers. Today, we welcome a well-known expert in billing and coding, to unpack these changes and help us incorporate proper e and coding into our daily practice. This nurse practitioner has imparted her wealth of knowledge as a speaker at many different AANP events over the years, and I'm thrilled that she has agreed to share her expertise with us once again on NP-Pulse. So please help me welcome Lynn Rapsober. Welcome to NP-Pulse. It's great to be here I am so glad you're joining us Lynn I see you as an expert you're a well-known expert in billing and coding you've spoken for a and P so many times um, with various different um, billing and coding uh, lectures and topics and I am so glad you're joining us today you know for years has been there's been so much discussion about uh, changing the E&M codes and um, finally um, after several years there's been really a major overhaul to the E&M office codes that we all use every single day and um, I want you to share with us what those changes are a lot of NPs are talking about it uh, we don't really know what the changes are we don't understand it don't know how to incorporate it into our clinical practices so I know you're gonna be a great resource as we try to provide some education and resources
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to spending this time going over these changes. They are the biggest changes that have occurred to E&M in over 25 years. So it's pretty exciting to be able to you know, give this information to your audience so that they understand what the changes are and able to pivot and make those changes in their workplace.
0: So let's jump right into it. So um Give us a, a, a little summary and let's talk about um, the the two ways now that we focus on
1: our, our documentation. Well, I think it's important to focus on some of the backstory about how this happened. And really in 2017, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services launched a program as a result of President Trump's executive order. He basically wanted practitioners to be able to focus on patients and not paperwork. So this was the whole clinician's patients over paperwork, and what they wanted to focus on was reducing the burden of documentation that providers have to go through. So that's where all of this really stemmed from. They actually listened to comments from over probably 2,000 clinicians, and these were some of the points that had come out. They wanted to change the way the history and physical exam parts were being recorded because the H&P seemed to have some duplication. So whether the patient was filling out the history form and then the clinician had to review it and sign it, the physical exam might have been done by a student, and a lot of that had to be duplicated. So some of those changes have been listened to, and they're being changed for the 2021 EMR.
0: So we can now, if we have a student that we're precepting um, and they're documenting in the chart, we don't have to go back in and re redocument
1: Correct. You just have to review what was being put onto the clinical record and just making sure that if there's anything that you have to go back and reassess with the clinician that you can do that. But there's no necessary to redocument what the clinician already put into the record.
0: That's great. And and what are some of the other changes?
1: Well, they also looked at the guidelines as far as how we document for the clinician's time, the actual provider. And what they decided to focus on was medical decision-making and time. So those are the two ways now that we can look at our billing. So even though you're going to have to do some level of history and physical exam on your patient, what's going to drive the reimbursement is going to be the amount of medical decision-making you're doing or the amount of time that you're spent doing the work.
0: And so give me some examples. If I, if I'm, uh, practicing in my in my clinic um, each day. Let's say I have a patient that comes in with diabetes. Um, what would be, would be a scenario uh, where things, how things would have been and then what the, how those changes impact me now?
1: So before you'd have to see that patient, if they were an established patient, you would do some level of history, physical exam and medical decision-making. And what would go for, what level of service you would bill would be how much history you performed, how much physical exam, and how much medical decision-making. If it was a new patient, you need to weigh all three equally, history, exam, and medical decision-making. If it was an established patient, you could pick the two out of three you wanted to use, whether it was history and physical exam, history and medical decision-making, or physical exam and medical decision-making. Now, it's really looked at medical decision-making based on the complexity and problems that you're addressing with your patient, and then the data that you review and analyze as you're seeing that patient. And then what's the risk to treat or not to treat that patient? So it's a little bit different focus. So you give me an example. Um,
0: you know, I, I think one thing I do know is that uh, now when we do our chart prep, when we're reviewing outside documents, when we're reviewing old labs, even just getting ready for that office visit, we can count that as part of our time,
1: correct? Exactly. So you have two choices. You can do medical decision-making or time. So when you're looking at a chart, you are going to be looking at probably an external note from a referring provider, or maybe the patient went to see a specialist if They had um, an eye exam, for example, going back to that diabetic patient, you might be looking at that note to see if they have any, you know, diabetic uh, vision changes. You may have ordered a hemoglobin A1C on the patient and you need to review that. You may have ordered an EKG on the patient, or you might have sent them to the cardiologist. So those notes all can be taken into consideration and counted towards your medical decision making.
0: And what about the, the time?
1: So if you're spending more time with the patient reviewing these, you can actually look at the time as a deciding factor. And the time elements include all those reviews, plus any time that you spent after the patient visit where you had to contact a visiting nurse agency, or if you wanted to talk to a uh, radiologist to go over a radiology report, you can do that as well. And that's all counted towards the time spent. So when you're seeing the patient, you have two ways of billing. You can either do it by medical decision-making, where you're counting up the tests that you looked at, the notes, et cetera, or the amount of time that it took to do all of this. So there's two ways to, to quantify the visit.
0: And so um, as, as we're looking at all of this, um, you know, we have to factor in the fact that patients may um, ha- need extended counseling. We might have to do a lot of teaching. Um, and how would we document that?
1: If you're documenting teaching on a patient, please make sure that you're specific. And I I can't stress enough that nurse practitioners document very well. We tend to undervalue what we document. So that becomes an issue. When you're seeing a patient and you're documenting what you're teaching them, that actually counts towards the time you spend with the patient. So if the most of the visit is really focusing on diabetic education, seeing how they're doing with their uh, managing their medications... That can be utilized by time, where you can actually count all the time that you spent educating that patient in that visit. And the time elements have changed. So we're actually going to be getting reimbursed for the higher number of minutes that you spend with the patient in that old documentation coding system. So, for example, a 99214 was 25 minutes in the new system, it's 30 to 39 minutes. So you're actually getting credit for a longer periods of time that you spend with your patient. And we do a lot of education with our patients that previously was hard to document and get higher levels. 99215 was 40 minutes, and now it goes from 40 to 54 minutes. So we do get credit for that extra time that we're spending with the patient.
0: And and how would we document that? I mean, do you just document, I spent uh 30 minutes uh, doing face-to-face counseling and 25 minutes uh, reviewing the chart and et cetera. How is that specifically broken down and how do we document that?
1: So the old method of coding by time was greater than 50% of the face-to-face time was spent and it was a fraction of how much time. So going back to that 99214 visit of 25 minutes, maybe you spent 20 of 25 minutes doing that service. Now with the new system of coding by time, you take into account how much time it took you to review, all the lab work and data. You have to make a notation in the chart about that, so you have to make sure that it says hemoglobin A1c, what the level was, and maybe compare it to a previous reading. You can also obtain um, information from, say, medications and document whether you're changing that medication or not. You can also count in if you're spending time educating the patient about, a new medication that you might be putting the patient on. All those things have to be written out in your note, and that gets counted in your um, time management. So the total time that you spend with the patient is really what um, that amount is what you bill. So going back to 99214, that is now the new time is 30 to 39 minutes. So before it was 25, now you have an extra, you know, 10 to 15 minutes more of time that you can document.
0: Okay, and and but the key thing is we have to document what we're doing, um, and you know the burden of of charting I think is so great on on people that that's that's causing a lot of burnout. Um, but we're getting reimbursed for it now.
1: Exactly, and one of the things the electronic health records are doing now is providing you with a checklist. It's either a unique source or a unique code. A unique source is a note from a primary care provider or a note from a specialist that you're reviewing or a note from a cardiologist that you're looking at. A unique test is a uh, CPT code. So anything that has a CPT code gets counted as a unique test. So a CBC is a unique test. A hemoglobin A1C is a unique test. A CMP is a unique test. A BMP is a unique test. So if it has a CPT code, it gets counted. In that medical decision making.
0: So you're documenting unique sources and, and unique tests, um, but you do have to document what you reviewed, each everything that you reviewed.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's what you document as far as problems the patient has that you're addressing, but also the data that you analyze towards that. So that diabetic patient that you're seeing, you're putting in your ICD codes for the different uh, diabetic codes that you can bill for but you're also making sure that you have in there any medications any uh, testing that you've done and reviewed any unique sources of notes that you reviewed in the past
0: okay and and so you know going back to that diabetic patient let's say we're seeing this patient and they're coming in for their every three-month check Um, they also have a history of hypertension and allergic rhinitis and and other other problems that are on their chart but you know Am I hearing this correctly that now, if unless we're actually addressing those things, we don't have to document those?
1: Exactly. Any problems that we're addressing, that's what we can bill for. So gone are the days when you can put in the 20 diagnoses the patients might come in with, because if you're not doing anything about it, you really shouldn't be documenting it. So that's really important. And making sure that when you're putting down a diagnosis, that it actually makes sense with the patient. So an example would be taking that diabetic patient. If they come in with dysuria and they're diabetic, you wanna make sure that's in there because that's gonna weigh heavier on what medical decision-making you're doing than if you just coded it as dysuria.
0: Yeah, the more complex patient, uh, absolutely. So uh, we wanna be sure that we address, uh, only diagnose them with problems that we're going to be addressing. Uh, We don't have to have multiple diagnoses. It doesn't change anything in in our level of service that we get to to code unless we're actually going to address those problems. So really keeping it more simple, if you will.
1: Exactly. And I think we also have to go back and look at what do they mean by uh, complex number and complexity of problems addressed? You know, are they chronic illnesses that the patient's bringing to the visit and they're going to have some impact? Is it a brand new problem that we haven't even diagnosed yet? And that's we're going to have to work it up. So the higher the level of complexity with the patient, the higher the level of billing service you can use.
0: Exactly. And then so overall, they're trying to keep it uh, simplify things for us, um, really being sure that we're capturing the work that we're doing. But the key thing is that people have to document what they're doing to be able to build these levels of service.
1: Exactly. And like I say, nurse practitioners are great at documenting, but we undervalue our services. So this is a way that now we can actually look at medical decision making or time and decide which one we're using and maximize how much time we actually spend with the patient and get credit for it.
0: Yeah. And so we want to be sure that we're updated on all these guidelines. Now, um, I I heard that there are... um, uh, they added a couple of different things, um, one related to, is it social determinants of health?
1: Exactly. This is very exciting for us because a lot of our patients have food insecurities or they might have housing issues. And now under the risk of complications and morbidity and mortality, especially under the moderate level of medical decision-making, they've included significantly limited by social determinants of health. So if you're going to order diabetic medications such as insulin, do they have a way to store it? You know, if they're homeless, how are they going to be able to do that? So that's factoring in into our level of medical decision-making as well. So if you assess the
0: social determinants of health, you say, I- I'm going to prescribe this insulin, um, uh, discuss with the patient, uh, they don't have a refrigerator. Um, you would document that and that in assessing the social determinants of health would
1: qualify for a, a higher level of service? Exactly. It's listed under moderate, which is a level four. Okay. So your 99214 and 99204 visits that can qualify for the social determinants of health. Okay. And that's all social determinants of health. So, um, whatever it might be. And then what about end of life
0: care? I heard there's some new changes with that.
1: Exactly. We spend a lot of time at end-of-life care either trying to educate our patients about de-escalating care and how we're going to take them off treatments and medications, and maybe we're discussing with them and family members about how we're going to transition them from caring for their illness to palliative care. And that actually is a high level of medical decision-making. Because it does take a lot of time. So your 99215 and 99205 codes are the ones that are going to be counted in this area. So if you're de-escalating care, that's the codes that you might be looking at.
0: Okay. At, related to end-of-life care, though, not not if you're de-escalating care for any other reason. Correct.
1: You're right. It has to be a significant decline in the patient's care that requires them either to not resuscitate or to withdraw care.
0: Okay. And, um, so these are all great resources. And I think what's what's so important is that we stay up to date and abreast of of all these changes. And for a lot of people, I know I like myself, it included sometimes I'll just catch myself doing a nine nine two one three on everybody. Um, and I think we kind of get in those habits, and it's really important for people to take a look at uh, what they're documenting and and bill and code appropriately.
1: absolutely there are many times that we do things such as prescribing medication that we think it's so routine. And sometimes when we're not even changing the medication, we're not actually capturing a higher level of service for that because, well, I didn't really change the dose. So I'm not making a medical decision about that, but you are. And prescribing falls under the moderate category. So if whether you're changing a medication, increasing the dose, decreasing the dose, or just saying the patient's doing well, I'm going to keep them on this dose. That's a medical decision-making regarding prescriptive authority. So that falls under moderate. And moderate is? 99214 or 99204. Yeah. So um, I underbill. I'm undervaluing my service. Lots of folks are doing that. And the other thing to mention, too, while we're on the subject of 99214 and 99204, for example... The codes for the visits, new and established, it doesn't matter how much history, exam, and medical decision-making you do for any of these codes anymore because they're lumped together. So what falls into this category is what you're doing as far as the complexity of the conditions the patient's presenting with and you're addressing, and the amount of data you're reviewing and analyzing, and what the risk of treating and not treating is going to be. So each level has 99201, 99202, they're together. 99213, 99203 are together. 99214, 99204 is together. And 99215 and 99205 is together. So we don't have to think about, is this a newer established patient? What do I have to think about? History exam, medical decision-making. You don't have to worry two out of three or three out of three. Those are gone.
0: Which makes it a lot easier because that was so confusing, I think.
1: Exactly. And the other thing, too, is that physical exam, you know, sometimes people would add additional bullet points to try to get to the next level in the physical exam where now we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to spend as much time and focus on physical exam to get a number of points to get to a certain level of service. We only have to do the exam that's appropriate for the patient. Exactly,
0: which makes it a lot uh, more simple. And so uh, what if if you have a patient that's coming in and, and let's just use a diabetic once again, and they're coming in for uh, a routine follow-up and they're, you're just having a, a discussion um, encounter with them, you're actually not examining them that day, um, more of a, a consultation type visit. What would that be? Because I know we do a lot of, of those type of visits where maybe the
1: patient's not examined, but you're spending a lot of time with them. So again, looking at medical decision-making, if you have that diabetic patient and you're reviewing a lot of data, you can actually look at it from, the tests and documents that you're reviewing, how many unique tests you're ordering, how many unique tests you reviewed, and you can categorize it that way. Or if the amount of time you're spending with the patient seems to be taking a longer period of time, maybe they're struggling trying to understand how to measure their blood sugars and follow their diet and you're spending extra time. You can code by time in that instance because that's the bulk of the visit. That's how much time you're taking to spend to educate that patient. And it may be a higher level of service based on the amount of time you spend. But again, you have to document what you talked about and how much time it took you to do that.
0: Exactly. And are there any other uh, new changes? I mean, we've talked about so much already, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's, I know they, they did have a major overhaul so i know there are a lot of uh, changes are there any more that are are pertinent that you think to the average nurse practitioner practicing out there
1: so there was another code that was added it's called prolonged service so if for some reason you are seeing a patient either a 99205 or a 99215 and you go over the time limit so the time limit for the 99215 is up to 54 minutes And 99205 is up to 74 minutes. So once you cross that threshold, if you're into the next 15 minutes, you can replace that with a prolonged service code of G2212. It's in addition to the E&M code for that office visit, and it's times however many 15-minute increments over that you go.
0: Absolutely. And so that helps capture that extra time that you're spending with patients.
1: Exactly. So I know in the past, we've looked at how much we're billing for e services and not really valuing the amount of time it takes to do some of these things. And nurse practitioners incorporate all of this in our practice, in our business, and when we're seeing the patient. So we need to be able to c- capture that amount of time that it takes to do these services. And now we can, because coding by time encompasses everything that we have to do with that patient.
0: Absolutely.
1: So um I think we've provided
0: so much information to us and uh, I know we're going to be providing some resources in our in our show notes as well. Um can can I shift gears and I'm going to hit you with a surprise question because you weren't probably weren't anticipating this but I want to briefly touch on incident 2. Oh, I love incident 2. I know. So I'd like I'd like for you to give us a a quick primer on what is what is incident 2 and and what what do nurse practitioners need to know?
1: Incident 2 billing is for Medicare patients. It's when the person rendering the care is the nurse practitioner, but the billing provider would be the physician. So they're the one that is authorized to get payment. What that does is it allows Medicare to reimburse the practice at 100% because you're using the physician NPI. The problem with this is, as we're looking at the way payment is changing from quality, uh, procedure-driven to quality payment, we want to get credit for those levels of activity that we're doing with our patients. So in order to do that, we really need to make sure that we're getting billed under our own NPI number. To bill Incident 2, there's specific criteria that Medicare wants you to follow. Uh, the patient has to be seen initially by the physician, and they have to develop the treatment plan. The other thing is that you have to be under supervision, and that means a physician has to be in the office. It means that they cannot be on the golf course. They can't be in the endoscopy center, which is the next door over, but it's a different tax ID number. They have to be on site. And the reason for that is because the supervision means if you have a question that that person can come out and answer that for you. It doesn't mean they have to be in the room with you examining the patient. The patient also can't have a new problem. So Say the physician sees the initial Medicare patient, develops a treatment plan, they're coming back to you for follow-up, but there's a problem. The patient has a new problem associated with a medication, and you need to change the treatment plan. You're not authorized to do that under Incident 2 unless you bill that under your NPI number. If it goes under the physicians, they have to see the patient. So that visit has to be converted into a visit that the nurse practitioner gets billed under their NPI. Also, that the nurse practitioner has to be employed by that practice, so they have to be signing your paycheck, basically. And these are criteria that you have to follow, and if you're not following them, you're breaking the law, and basically it's fraud. And the Office of Inspector General is really looking at this heavily as to whether Incident 2 billing is occurring or not. And it's interesting, I was just on a coding workshop updating on MIPS for 2021, and I posed the question about how does a nurse practitioner or a PA get credited for programs such as MIPS if they're billed under the physician MPI or Incident 2? And they said, basically, we're invisible, so we don't get credit for that. So it's a good thing to know that our services can be credited and our care, our quality care can be measured if we don't Incident 2 bill.
0: Yeah, and I think it's so important for NPs to understand in a practice when you have a billing department. Who's doing the billing for you? Um, you need to understand what's going on. Are they billing incident two, or um, are, are they billing it under uh, you know your name, the physician's name? And and if there is a new problem that you come up with that the physician, so if you've got that diabetic patient that comes in for their routine, you know every three month visit, and the patient is hypertensive at that office visit, um, you you can't bill incident two for that visit because. That's a new problem. And so that problem, that visit needs to be billed under the nurse practitioner's NPI, um, which means the practice will get reimbursed less for that visit. But it's the right thing to do.
1: Absolutely. And a lot of times, if you're not asking the questions about how the practice is billing for your services, it can be problematic. And if you find out that that's happening in your practice, You need to address it right away because it's not, if you're not meeting that criteria that I had mentioned earlier, that could be constituted as fraud. Uh, And we don't want anybody to get into trouble when they're billing for services. And we also want to make sure that we're getting credit, again, for the hard work that we do and the quality care that we provide our patients. The whole focus now on evaluation and management and quality payment is to really look at how we can provide patients with health promotion and disease prevention, a la, the nursing model of care delivery,
0: exactly, and and so that's why it's so important, I think, for us to understand billing and coding. There is, we love to take care of our patients. We we love to teach them. We want to make a difference in their lives and improve their their quality of life. And uh, but we have to be able to document what we do and document it effectively and bill for it because there is a business side of healthcare. But we also need to understand what's going on in the billing office, um, uh, what's what's being put under our name, what's not. And we want nurse practitioners to get credit for the care that they're providing. These, um, you know, as, as we track the quality indicators and things like that, um, NPs are great at getting those hemoglobin A1Cs down. But if office visits aren't being coded under their name, they're not going to get credit for the great work that they do
1: and knowing the quality payment program, it's based on incentives. So the higher value that you provide and the higher care that you give to your patient that you keep that hemoglobin A1C under control, it actually equates to reimbursement at higher levels of service as far as quality payment goes. So you can actually be rewarded for this quality care. I don't know if nurse practitioners are always aware of that, that the practices, if they meet high quality thresholds, they get bonus checks. And it's good to know that if you're providing quality care that you start asking questions, you know, am I going to be part of this bonus system and take some credit and use that towards your performance reviews as well?
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, if the, if the practice is getting a bonus check because of the quality care that, that an NP is providing, um, I myself would love to get, a, um, you know, a bonus based on the bonus that my practice is, is getting.
1: If you don't ask the questions, you're not going to know, <laughs> though. So that's the important part is, you know, get involved with your billing department. Ask them how they're billing for your services. Are they billing under your NPI or are they billing on the physician NPI? And if they say they're billing under the physician NPI, query them. Ask them how. why are they doing that and what's their justification?
0: Yeah, especially if, if as an NP, you're seeing new problems, which I'm sure most NPs are diagnosing and managing new problems at each office visit. Um, so we wanna be sure that that's being captured. So Lynn, going back, I know we have to wrap up right now, but going back to these new E&M coding changes, three takeaways that you want all NPs to know.
1: I think the first is get your information regarding the changes, understand what these changes involve and how they can impact your practice, understand what is involved in medical decision-making know about those unique tests, unique source, the complexity of the patient that you're seeing and analyzing that information, and also whether or not time should be what you should be billing. If you're spending a lot of time educating your patient, that you might want to use coding by time. If you're using that, make sure that it's total time that you spend doing the different types of activities, such as preparing the chart, pre-charting ahead of time, reviewing the information from previous testing. If you're educating in um, counseling a patient, and if you're coordinating care. Those are things that you all credit under coding by time.
0: And and you can actually code one patient by time and another one by medical decision making. You don't have to do the same thing uh, for each patient.
1: No, and that's the beauty. You don't want every patient to look alike. And I think that was the frustration with meeting bullet points and those criteria from the old system is that sometimes you actually did things more because you wanted to build a higher level of service, that really weren't necessary with the patient. So we don't have to worry about how many bullet points for physical exam we need anymore. Those things are gone. All you have to do is make sure that you review what the documentation from the history is, whether it's done by the medical assistant or whether it's done by the family. And then physical exam, if it's being done by a student, you get to take credit for that and just review the information. And if there's any abnormal findings, just double check and make sure that they're the findings that the student did find and co-sign, you don't even have to co-sign the note.
0: You just assume the note is yours. Um, that's what's so great. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for joining us today. You've, you've provided so much information and you're an expert at billing and coding and all things business. So I appreciate you taking the time to join us today on MP Pulse. Thank
1: you for having me, Sophia.
0: Lynn, thank you so much for this discussion today. I'm sure that many of our listeners are feeling much more confident when it comes to e and coding. Be sure to check this episode's description for links to where you can report reimbursement issues to AANP and access help with reimbursement issues. 2021 AANP National Conference is now open for registration. I'm so excited. We're presenting this conference completely online for 2021 with more than 80 CE sessions available for you to take part at, at your own pace over the course of two months. I hope to see you in there and chat with you in the conference forum. Please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. (laughs)